Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists and food makers, farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good Sunday to you food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio and a very happy new year to you as I embark on my 16th year on radio. And I thank you for your very loyal and long listenership. I hope that you will tune in as we continue our celebration of food and the role that it plays in our lives. You can explore everything about gastronomy, the culture, the science, the history, the backstories, the deeper meetings that come together every time people sit down to enjoy a meal. This show is a place for people who love to cook and love to eat. And it's my goal to make your dishes come alive with flavor. While I am a professional chef by trade and have spent almost 20 years on television and uh, 16, as I mentioned, on the radio, I talk about everything that feeds your soul. And I'm all about living the best life. So we'll dish on food and health, wellness, wine, cocktails, trends, tech, and fitness on this show to fuel your hunger and satiate your appetite. So please do stay tuned because there is delicious conversation all throughout this hour. If you missed a show, you can always find podcasts on iTunes under Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. And my website at chefjamie.com will hopefully make you a better cook in your own kitchen. And I do hope that you'll become a friend and a fan on social on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, you'll find me at Chef Jamie Gwen. And with that said, this Sunday, as we kick off a new year, let's dig in. I like to start off the show with a tutorial of sorts. Um, sometimes it's a, a food lecture. Uh, sometimes it's a new discovery. And today we are beholding the meatball. Yes, it is a thing of beauty when done right. And I love the winter season for hearty comfort fare. I thought it would be the perfect time to share some meatball making secrets. The stuff that chefs don't tell you when you ooh and ah over the meatball that arrives at the table. You know the one, it's soft and moist and it melts in your mouth. Oh yeah, that meatball. Well, when done right, Meatballs are moist and tender, and they pack a ton of flavor because meatballs make me happy. And whether they're served on their own alongside crusty bread or on top of spaghetti, they transport us to a very content place, right? When done wrong, well, they can be dry and terrible and certainly not worthy of eating. The secret to great meatballs, in my humble culinary opinion, is plenty of other stuff besides the meat. Yes, choosing the right base is key, but you need to load it up with other ingredients for flavor and moisture. So here is how you get into meatball heaven. The reality is in a meatball that fat equals flavor. And if January is your lean month, I understand and respect that. Although I do believe that every day in moderation and three bites of chocolate cake is worth it. Uh, maybe you'll wait till the first day of February to <laughs> master the meatball. But the meatball is not the time to skimp on fat. 
most people will think to buy an expensive cut of meat because the price might indicate a higher quality. But the truth is that butchers tend to increase the price of leaner cuts of meat, which are more beneficial to your diet, yes, but they don't certainly make for tender melt-in-your-mouth meatballs. So I use a mix of ground beef, ground veal, and ground pork for my classic meatball. It's the beef that adds the meaty flavor and some heftiness. It's the veal that allows for that luscious mouthfeel. And it's the pork that brings in, you guessed it, more fat. Now, you have to give the meatballs some love. So the lighter, fluffier meatball has breadcrumbs and herbs as essentials. You can use the traditional Italian breadcrumb. I like the plain version because then I can season them myself rather than the Italian style. Um, You can also use panko or what is known as Japanese breadcrumbs. I happen to find they soak up more liquid and they create air bubbles for the fat from the meat to soak through. And that's actually exactly what you're looking for. And we'll get to that in just a second. Um, trees, uh, cheese rather, see, I, I got tongue tied cause we're talking about meatballs and I'm hungry. Cheese is traditional. I use Parmesan. It adds flavor through its saltiness. And then from there you can add whatever you like to build more flavor, fresh herbs, chopped onion. It's really up to you as far as I'm concerned to make a, a signature meatball, but the liquid in a meatball is key. And some great cooks use milk or water or a mix of both, but the secret is that it must be cold. So those air pockets that I mentioned, alluded to just a minute ago, those are essential to what is a juicy, light meatball, not one that is dense and heavy and could, you know, go from the bowl to the table and onto the floor. It's the cold liquid that bonds with the fat in the meat And the fat stays solid before cooking, thus keeping the fat in the meatball, which is where you want it. So no matter what liquid you choose to use, milk or water or a mix of both, um, please make sure that it is ice cold. In fact, I'll add ice to the measuring cup of liquid and then I'll strain the ice out as I pour it into the meat mixture. It's that cold liquid that creates those air pockets that when you cook the meatball gives you juiciness. And please don't overwork the mixture. The tighter you pack the meat, the firmer your meatballs will be. Now, I like to cook the meatballs twice to create a crust. I brown my meatballs in olive oil. You can brown them in a saute pan and roll them often, or you can roast them or rather even broil them on a cookie sheet in the oven, which I find much easier. Um, They do have one sort of flat side from where they sat, but I'm okay with that. They get all over caramelization, which is delicious. And then I throw those browned bad boys into the tomato sauce to finish cooking. Now, the best thing you can do for your next meatball or meatloaf dinner is test a patty. Uh, the, The secret here is that in order to know whether the meat is properly seasoned, you need to test the mixture. So you take just a tablespoon or so and you form a little small patty and you cook it quickly in a saute pan and... You can determine whether the mixture needs more salt or pepper. And by the way, this rule applies to lots of things. This will make your signature everything taste better once it gets to the table. Uh, The last thing you want to do is form all the meatballs and then find out later that they needed more salt, right? And lastly, I should mention that meatballs don't just have to be made from meat. 
They can be made from ground chicken during this lean and clean January. I happen to make a buffalo chicken slider that I think is absolutely killer, if I may say myself. Um, A turkey meatball with crushed pineapple makes a delicious Caribbean slider. And it doesn't really matter what's in the meatball. Meatballs do make me happy. And now that I've told you all of my secrets, I'd love to know yours. Please email me, jamie, J-A-M-I-E at chefjamie.com. It comes right to me and I will gladly reply quickly. I'll share my secrets if you show me yours. And then do check out chefjamie.com where you'll find a recipe entitled, Meatballs Make Me Happy. And you will have mastered the meatball in no time. Okay, it's on to food news now. Time for some news you can use. I don't think that tears should play a role when making uh, meatballs or grilling up fajita fixings. Although some of us do well up when we're uh, prepping onions in the kitchen. But the world's first tearless onion has hit retail stores. It is called a sunion, yes, and it is supposed to take the pain away. Now, um, coming up in another week or so, our produce guru, Robert Schuler of Melissa's will be here, and I'll be sure to ask him about it. But Sunions made their debut back in October at the Produce Market Association Fresh Summit, which was in New Orleans. And um, they were talking about it inside the produce circles, this innovative new vegetable, the world's first tearless onion. Uh, but it's actually now available to uh, those of us consumers. Now, it has taken over three decades of research and development, and it is a long day sweet onion, which means that the bulbs require 15 hours of sunlight to grow. And they're grown in the United States, by the way. But if you're wondering if this mild or onion will lack flavor. It has been called by some as the best onion ever. And so I can't wait to taste it. Sunions, as they're called, have begun their first season of retail availability. So keep your eyes peeled for them at grocery stores and then do report back on your chopping experience because I would love to know. And do stay tuned because we have a fantastic lineup for today's show. So don't touch your dial. There's lots more delicious conversation and fabulous food in your radio. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen, and I'll be right back. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. She's been hailed as the next Julia Child, a lofty compliment, no doubt. And she's taught everyone from professional chefs to middle school kids to Michael Pollan to cook. Samin Nostra says that anyone can cook anything and make it delicious. And she bases her teachings on four principles, salt, fat, acid, and heat. And her first cookbook, A cooking school in prose form, really, has just released. It is quite a coup to have chef and author Samin Nosrat here, New York Times contributor and America's next great cooking teacher, as she's been called, and I am over the moon. I'm very glad to have you. Welcome, Samin. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Jamie. Thank (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. Uh, 
congratulations to you. The book, as you've de- defined it, described it, and instructed, is really much more of a guide to cooking than it is a cookbook, right? A manual of sorts, I would call it. And I would like to start, though, by talking about your culinary career. If you could tell us your story, give us a virtual tour, lay the groundwork. Well, my family, uh, my family's from Iran, and my parents came to San Diego in the mid-1970s, and I was born in 1979. And my mom is just an extraordinary cook, so I grew up eating the most delicious Persian food. Oh, Tadik. And also tacos. Tadik. And, Yes, Tadig, every day, oh, my favorite. It's <laughs> so, so good. Um, and so I really, I, I didn't grow up necessarily aiming to want to cook. It was more just that I really grew up learning the pleasures of eating, which now in retrospect, I really do believe that to be a good cook, you have to love to eat. Like there are people who don't really like food that much and enter culinary world and I don't really understand that so hmm. I would have <laughs> so to I think agree that was sort of my foundation and then um and then when I, I I moved to Berkeley to go to UC Berkeley for college and while I was in school um I saved my money with my boyfriend for seven months to eat at Chez Panisse restaurant which I had never heard of but that was his idea so we saved 220 dollars which was more money than I'd ever spent on a meal <laughs> right and we went there and um, it was really, it was really an incredible experience to go to this place that I didn't really even understand its place in American culinary, sort of in the landscape. But and I grew up eating really delicious food, so it wasn't that I had never had a great meal before. But I had never been to a restaurant where I had been, I had been treated like that before, where I was just fully welcomed and where all of my needs were cared for. And, you know, people just made sure we had everything that we could have asked for. And Mm. so um, when it was time for dessert, the dessert was a chocolate souffle. And the woman who brought it, she brought it. And I was 19 years old, so I definitely looked out of place. You know, I was wearing like a denim skirt and a black tank top (laughs) in this fancy restaurant. (laughs) I mean, we definitely were sticking out, I'm sure. Um, So she brought this chocolate souffle and she said, have you ever had souffle before? And I said, no. And she said, would you like me to teach you how to eat it? And I said, yes. And she said, well, you poke a hole in it with your spoon and you pour in this raspberry sauce. And that way, every bite has sauce. So I did that. And I took a bite. And she said, how is it? And I said, oh, it's really good. But you know what would make it even better is a glass of cold milk. (laughs) And (laughs) And so she sort of laughed and like, you know, I had no idea how rude it is in a restaurant to, like, tell somebody how to make their food better. Like, it just didn't, I don't know, she was asking me a question, I gave her an honest answer. And I also didn't understand at that time that in fine dining, it's considered really, like, um, you know, childlike to ask for milk. Like, even even in Italy, to have milk, like, a cappuccino after 10 a.m. is, like, for babies only. And so... Um, it's true. So she thought it was, like, kind of gross or whatever. But she went and she brought me the milk, and she also brought us two glasses of dessert wine, and sort of to teach us the refined accompaniment of for, for, for the dessert. And, you know, I still hold, maintain that, like, warm chocolate brownie with cold milk or chocolate chip cookie with cold milk, like, it's good. Like, oh, I, I will have to agree <laughs> with so. you. Wait, and I'll take it one step yeah. further and tell you I have no issue with the shameless act of adding a couple of ice cubes to the milk. 
I'll even oh, go totally. there with you. Oh, for sure. And and I think there's totally. there's no shame in it at all. So yeah, so she brought us this dessert and it was really nice. And I just was so inspired from that meal that I uh, I was like, I want to work in this place. I want to, you know, mm. and I always worked throughout college. So I wrote them a letter asking for a job as a busser and I brought my resume in and they said, oh, you have to bring that to the floor manager. So they like led me to the floor manager's office. And when she opened the door, it was the souffle lady. And so um, we sort of had this jolt of recognition. And she, I think, you know, again, in retrospect, I, I imagine that she was probably desperate for help or something because she said, oh, can you start tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> or she and thought so you were I, malleable <laughs> and she was going to make yeah. a, a great eater out of you one day. Yeah. Right. And so, yeah, so I started busting tables the next day. And, you know, it's just. Chez Panisse is such an incredible, um, it's a sensual playland, you know, like there's, it's just every decision there has been made with such care and, and there's things that smell beautiful and look beautiful and feel beautiful and everything is just sort of there to really heighten your senses and, Mm. and, and make you feel really alive. And that really worked on me. And I was, I was an English major. I wanted to graduate and become a poet. And no one had really bothered to tell me that, like, that's not a really, like, salient career path. And so <laughs> just around the time it occurred to me that I would probably have to go get a job in advertising, I was now spending more time in Chez Panisse and, and, like, walking through this kitchen. And it was so inspiring that I, I, you know, I begged them to teach me how to cook. So I started working first as a volunteer and then as an intern and then as the garde manger, which is sort of the beginning job. And then, you know, I worked my way up there. And I'd always wanted to go to Italy, so they arranged for me to go have an apprenticeship in Italy. And, um, and that, yeah, and so after, like, probably about three years of working at Chez Panisse and going to Italy and working with an amazing uh, chef who sort of was a surrogate mom to me, Benedetta Vitali and Dario Cicchini, the amazing butcher um, of Tuscany who was constantly reciting Dante and doing all this work to preserve Tuscan food heritage. I came back and the chef who had been my mentor at Chez Panisse left to open his own Italian restaurant. So I went to go work for him. Christopher Lee. Yes. um, I worked worked there for five years. And then when that restaurant closed in 2009, I just took the leap. I said, okay, you know, I want to figure out a life for myself that involves writing and cooking. So I, um, and by then I had taken a class at the journalism school in Berkeley with Michael Pollan, hmm. and he was getting ready to write a book about cooking. So he hired me to teach him how to cook, and we worked together. And every week I would bring him a different idea. I'd be like, oh, um, how about, <laughs> you know, I always had all these book ideas up my sleeve, and they were all really bad. Like every week, one day I said, oh, <laughs> why don't I write about teaching this gutter punk how to cook or something? He said, those, you know, those ideas are really bad, but... Pretty quickly, he noticed that I had this obsession with salt, fat, acid, and heat, and that this was sort of this like methodology that I was using to teach him how to cook. And he said, what's the deal here? What's the deal with the stuff? And I said, oh, yeah, I always thought I would write a book about that. And he said, there you go. There's your idea. There it like, is. That's, that's the thing. And you, and you came to it through that journey. See, I think the journey is so much – I mean, we, we always hear about and we talk about – um, it's not about the destination, but about the journey. And you are a testament to that. Samin, we need to take a quick break. If you'll please pause there. More with chef and author Samin Nostrat. Salt, fat, acid, heat. Yes, they are all essential. We'll be back right after this. 
We're back and we're dishing Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio at the start of this new year. It's my goal to make you the best cook you know. And chef and author Samin Nostrat is here sharing her best culinary advice. By the way, if you've just tuned in, you're late because we are learning of the culinary journey of Samin Nosrat. You've heard about her. Yes, she is considered to be the next great cooking teacher in America. And her book entitled Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat has just released. It is not as much a book nor a cookbook, but more so I call it nonfiction. It's a start to finish read and it will make you a better cook. And it's all about the four elements of good cooking. You've narrowed it down, Samin. If we master all four, you say anyone can cook and make something delicious. Definitely. I think, you know, so the way, thank you so much for all the kind things that you just said, but I, the one thing that I've noticed for myself, um, is, you know, when I get on the phone or just any, in any situation where people ask me a specific question, I just take a second to think about, you know, this kind of, how do I answer this food question? How do I wrap my mind around this specific food problem? And mm-hmm. all of the answers are there sort of from all of this experience. And I don't think that I'm necessarily some, like, genius. I just think that I have done a lot. I've experienced it a lot of times. I sat at a desk for a long time trying to figure out how to articulate this stuff. And I have been in so many different situations from being the person who didn't know anything myself and was learning it Hmm. to all of the different kind of steps along the way where I was forced to teach younger cooks, where I was, you know, where I taught kids, where I taught all sorts of different people. And every time you have that experience, you learn a different aspect of how to articulate the lesson and how to simplify it and distill it and make it more powerful. So for me, I have to say, you know, when I started writing the book, I, I... I did what probably everybody does when they're new to a craft, which was I mimicked my, um, you know, my mentors and my guides. And so I tried to be Michael Pollan when I first sat down to write this book, and it didn't work because I'm not Michael Pollan. No, only Michael Pollan (laughs) is Michael Pollan. Yeah, exactly. Right. But one of the things that I really, really admire about him and the way that he's able to distill these really complicated ideas into simple language that makes sense to anyone without being condescending. Hmm. You know, his sort of trick is that he always takes the journey himself as a beginner. So, you know, when it was Botany of Desire, he planted a garden without knowing how to do it. When it was cooked, he learned how to cook. So it's just, he, he takes you on this journey where, that he also knows nothing about. I want to discuss the four elements of good cooking and your lessons. So please start at the beginning. What is salt? So, um, well, salt is just that green, you know, that we all know mostly in the shaker, <laughs> sodium chloride. But um, I think throughout my exploration of the ingredient, I, it is really, I think, the single most important thing in good cooking. If you get your salt right, you're probably 65, 70% of the way to deliciousness. And what I've noticed, what I learned actually is that um, as a young cook, because I grew up in a family, my mom really believed in using very little salt. She was sort of like half hippie, half Iranian. And so she (laughs) barely used any. (laughs) And my aunt would come over at the table and eat dinner with us. And we, my brothers and I just thought it was so funny that she was always shaking salt on her food because we had no concept of like, what does salt even do for food? But really its main role, what what, what it does in every sort of instance where it's used, 
is it enhances flavor. And it does that in a lot of different ways. But I like to think of it in a sort of a poetic way of salt makes ingredients be the most themselves that they can be. Mm. So um, it brings out sweetness in vegetables. You know, it gives us, it just allows us to taste um, everything in its most perfect state. Yes, it's, it's heightened flavor to me. Salt, fat, acid, heat, written by Samin Nasrat. It is so informative. Uh, It's being called a new generation culinary resource. And I will tell you, it is a must read. You can also very much look forward to, as I will, uh, the highly anticipated documentary as the book is being made into a series as we speak. And I know that's taken you around the world, Samin, on wonderful travels, and we can't wait to watch. Oh, thank you. I can't wait to share it with everyone. (laughs) And in the interim, you can follow Samin's continued culinary adventures on Instagram, where she posts often, Ciao Samin, as in the Italian, Ciao Ciao, uh, C-I-A-O, Samin, uh, on Instagram, uh, Facebook, Twitter, and otherwise social media too. The book, Salt, Fad, Acid, Heat. Don't miss it. Samin, please come back anytime. I'd love to have you. Thank you so much. Thank happy you. Happy New Year to you. And Happy New Year to you. So what do you crave? Is it sweet or salty? More importantly, do your cravings get the best of you? Well, best-selling author, nutrition, and overeating expert Julia Ross is exposing the real reason that so many of us can't stick to a healthy diet. Our favorite foods are engineered to be addictive. And if you're looking to resolve those cravings, well, then this is a must-read. Her new book release is All the Buzz, and it's entitled The Craving Cure. Identify your craving type to activate your natural appetite control. She's sharing a simple nutritional strategy, and I will tell you, it is really an interesting and fascinating subject to get to know. Julia Ross is here, and I'm very glad to have you. Hi, Julia. Happy New Year to you. Thank you. Same to you. Thank you. Okay, so I've loved reading your book because I'll tell you, it feels like you were in my living room, like you have personal insight about my kitchen. kitchen, (laughs) I happened to be on, I was reading last night on the couch, so you know, which Whichever room, doesn't matter. But I I feel like you have personal insight to my eating habits, but so many of ours. And I think first and foremost, importantly, could we define the word craving? Because that's something really fascinating to me in your research and your prose. Well, I'd love to, and I I hope you won't mind if I take the historical perspective. Not at all. Uh, We never had cravings um, for most of the last two million years that we've been eating on the planet Hmm. uh, until after the 1970s. Um, And so craving being defined as the need, the obsessive need for um, nutrient void, high calorie, uh, health destructive substances. (laughs) So somebody who has the occasional dessert would not qualify. The piece of chocolate I have at night that I crave, that little square of bittersweet, does not qualify as a craving. Not really. It's not uh, doing you you any harm uh, unless it's keeping you awake because dark chocolate does have uh, an extra amount of uh, stimulant value of chocolate in it. Um, Interesting. But uh, other than that, uh, it's very unlikely to, to be doing any health damage. 
So the craving itself is the what we associate with a, a very negative effect, the the continuing challenge of, uh, of weight gain. Weight gain, feeding our bodies something that it, it doesn't react well to. That's right. Okay. And w- w- at this point, 70% of us are, are reaping the consequences of our cravings, you know, with mm-hmm. overweight and obesity rates. Um, but... What a lot of people don't know is that at this point, over 50% of us are also um, being diagnosed with some form of diabetes. Yeah, no doubt the the next ep- or the growing epidemic, I should say, in this country. Um, I I answered the questionnaire. I did the work uh, <laughs> in the uh, in the craving cure. I should let my listeners know. There's this fascinating questionnaire that allows you to determine. Uh, what type of craving your brain is generating. And if we can put our finger on it, then we have a a very hopeful opportunity to solve it, right? So I am a stressed craver, but would you talk about, please, the five different categories? Sure. The the first uh, most common type of craving is uh, type 1 craver, um, who is low in serotonin, and, and serotonin is our natural antidepressant. Um, it's our inner sunshine. Um, when we don't have enough of it, and we're, we're very deficient uh, in serotonin and the other four uh, appetite-regulating brain chemicals at this time in history, we feel negative, uh, irritable, worried. Uh, we can experience panic. Um, a lot of sleep disorders come with this. Julia Ross has the craving cure. We'll pause for just a moment. Back right after this. The comfort craver, those are, that's all about endorphins, right? That's all about our natural painkillers. So yeah. um, when, when our endorphins are low, you know, we, we want those comfort foods. And uh, how do we know if we're a comfort craver? Well, we, we have uh, foods that we regard as our best friends, mm. um, but we also tend to be oversensitive emotionally. We, we may be the ones who cry at commercials. Um, <laughs> so... Having enough endorphin is uh, is critical, you know, to our emotional well-being as well as our uh, dietary health. Maybe I could chalk it up, Julia, to the fact that I live uh, and breathe the food world, but I'm sounding a little bit like all of these, just so you know. <laughs> well, it, it's not unusual now in our dietary history um, mm. to have all five craving types, you know, to have 
depletions in all five of the areas of the brain that are supposed to be generating normal appetite. If you're a stressed craver, you crave for the relief of that pressure, right? That's right. You know, so we're, we're grazing while we're working on the computer late at night, yes. you know, trying mm-hmm. to reach the deadline. No doubt. And then lastly, type 5 is a fatigued craver. That's, that's the, uh, basically the, the caffeine and dark chocolate craver. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there we go. Up. Uh, sometimes pure sugar can do it, you know, jelly beans. Mm-hmm. Um, give some people that, that uh, lift of energy and focus yes, that high. temporarily, of course. So then the, the most important question is, uh, how do you turn off the fatal attraction? Well, it turns out it's very easy. The, the, these the intimidating uh, brain chemicals, you know, with names like endorphin, serotonin, gamma, aminobutyric acid, and so forth, are actually very simple chemicals that are made out of a single protein, uh, or amino acid uh, in uh, you know in, in complete uh, proteins there are 20 amino acids and we make all of our body structures um, out of proteins some combination of these 20 well it, uh, we only need five um, amino acids to correct um, every single one of these so each one of these parts of the brain that is malfunctioning and generating cravings will quiet and, uh, you know, start directing us towards healthy food um, if it's fed just its own special amino acid. For example, uh, type 1, the the low serotonin depressed craver, uh, all of that kind of craving and, and mood and sleep dysfunction can be corrected by taking uh, increasing protein consumption right. and taking a supplement of the uh, serotonin fueling uh, amino acid tryptophan. See, I think that is so amazing that you can identify the style of craver that you are and that you've developed and determined how to offset that craving and and turn it off essentially like you say it's so easy and still live a good life with good food uh, you know, even your anti-craving uh, guidelines include butter and beef, which I was thrilled to see. I mean, the restrictions are minimal if you can get to the root of it. I, I don't regard them as restrictions. Um, they're actually, you know, relaxing our restrictions. You know, we've been so anti-protein and anti-saturated fat for so long, but right. it's important to take that historical perspective. Hmm. Before 1970, when we stopped eating saturated fat so much and reduced our protein content by a third uh, since then, um, we had no weight problems. And uh, in 1960, for example, the diabetes uh, incidence was less than 1%. It's over 50% now. Unbelievable. Well, we're certainly doing something wrong, and you are setting us right um, and I thank you. It really is a, an incredible read. And I commend you on um, your research and your clinics and all the good that you're sharing. Thank you so much. Truly appreciate it. Julia Ross is a pioneer in the use of nutritional therapy for the treatment of eating disorders, addictions, and mood problems. And her new book release is a must read um, for anyone who 
wants to make 2018 their best year to curb those cravings, to live the best life. Because you know, it's my goal on this show to feed your soul. And so we're doing just that. The book is called The Craving Cure, and it grants everyone access to Julia Ross's very revolutionary approach. It starts with a five-part questionnaire, and then it specifies the amino acid supplements that are needed to curb your specific type of craving. So start off 2018 smart. Read this book. It is called The Craving Cure, and it really is um, quite fantastic. Julia, I wish you all the best. Thank you, Jamie. Same to you. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of ever-evolving culinary landscape. And feel free to weigh in. You can email me anytime, jamie at chefjamie.com, and find my shameless Daily Dish on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. Before I thank you for listening this hour, I'll leave you with my last bite, my last ounce or tidbit of gastronomic inspiration and conversation. Uh, We are eating lean and clean, of course, and so uh, to wake up feeling healthier, you should make my blueberry quinoa breakfast bowls. I happen to love quinoa, the ancient grain packed with protein. So I make a big batch and I keep it in the fridge so that I can serve it as a side dish at dinner or at breakfast in a jiffy. Yes, it has big flavor and it makes the ultimate power bowl. So you combine the cooked quinoa come tomorrow morning with a handful of blueberries, a splash of milk, maybe a drizzle of honey or agave, and a pinch of cinnamon. And you just cook it in a small sauce pot. It takes about five, eight minutes to come together because the quinoa is already cooked. And then you spoon it into a, a bowl and you top it with some toasted almonds and you have a power-packed breakfast that will keep you full till lunch. And oh, it's so delicious. I will post my blueberry quinoa breakfast bowls on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. And I will meet you here for more scintillating conversation. I do thank you for listening. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off, and I hope you continue to eat well. Well.